CD7. Oh well, time for Artful. He took a step back, stopped, and saw what was happening behind Coates. He tried to hide it, but he couldn't stop the momentary flash of relief in his eyes. Coates couldn't stop the momentary flicker of attention. Vimes punched up the scabbard and extension of his arm. The stiff leather caught the man under the chin, thrusting his head back. Then the leather was brought down on the sword hand, and, as an afterthought, Vimes kicked Ned on the shin, just enough to make him collapse. He'd always had an allergy to edged weapons too near his face. "'Well done. Nice try,' he said, and turned his back and faced the crowd. To the sound of gurgling behind him, he said, "'Anything's a weapon used right. Your bell is a club. Anything that pokes the other man hard enough to give you more time is a good thing. Never, ever threaten anyone with your sword unless you really mean it, because if he calls your bluff, you suddenly don't have many choices and they're all the wrong ones. Don't be frightened to use what you learned when you were kids.' We don't get marks for playing fair, and for close-up fighting as your senior sergeant, I explicitly forbid you to investigate the range of coshies, blackjacks and brass knuckles sold by Mrs Goodbody at number 8 Easy Street, at a range of prices and sizes to suit all pockets, and should any of you approach me privately, I absolutely will not demonstrate a variety of specialist blows suitable for these useful yet tricky instruments. Right, let's limber up. I want you all out here with your truncheons in two minutes. You think it's just a silly club? I will show you otherwise. Jump to it. He turned to the stricken Ned, who'd raised himself to a sitting position. Nice moves, Mr Coates. He didn't learn them in the watch, I know that. Anything we need to discuss? Care to tell me where you were last night? Morphic Street, maybe? Day off, muttered Ned, rubbing his jaw. Right, right. None of my business. Seems to me we failed to hit it off, Ned. That's right. You think I'm some kind of spy? I know you're not John Keel. Vimes kept his face perfectly impassive, which was, he realised, a complete giveaway in itself. Why do you say that? he said. I don't have to tell you. You ain't a watch sergeant either, and you were lucky just now, and that's all I'm saying. Ned got to his feet as the other watchman filed out into the yard again. Vimes let him go and turned his attention to the men. None of them had ever been taught anything. They'd learned, to a greater or usually a lesser extent, from one another. And Vimes knew where that road went. On that road, coppers rolled drunks for their small change and assured one another that bribes were just perks and it got worse. He was all for getting recruits out on the street, but you had to train them first. You needed someone like Detritus bellowing at them for six weeks and lectures about duty and prisoners' rights and the service to the public... And then you could hand them over to the street monsters who told them all the other stuff, like how to hit someone where it wouldn't leave a mark, and when it was a good idea to stick a metal soup plate down the front of your trousers before attending to a bar brawl. And if you were lucky and they were sensible, they found somewhere between impossible perfection and the pit where they could be real coppers. Slightly tarnished because the job did that to you, but not rotten. He formed them into twos and set them attacking and defending. It was dreadful to watch. He let it go on for five minutes. "'All right, all right,' he said, clapping his hands. "'Very good indeed. "'When the circus comes to town, I'll definitely recommend you.' "'The men sagged and grinned sheepishly as he went on. "'Don't you know any of the moves? "'The throat slam? "'The red-hot poker? "'The rib rattler? "'Say I'm coming at you with a big, big club. "'What would you do?' "'Run away, Sarge,' said Wiglet. "'There was laughter. "'How far can you run?' said Vimes. "'Got to fight sometime. "'Lance Corporal Coates.' Ned Coates had not been taking part. He'd been leaning against the wall in a sort of stationary swagger, watching the sad show with disdain. Sarge? 
he said, propelling himself upright with the minimum of effort. Show Wiggler how it's done. Coates pulled his truncheon. It was, Vimes saw, custom-made, slightly longer than the general issue. He took up station in front of the constable, with his back very expressively towards Vimes. "'What do you want me to do, Sarge?' he said over his shoulder. "'Show him a few decent moves. Take him by surprise.' "'Right you are, Sarge.' Vimes watched the desultory clatter of sticks. One, two, three, and around Ned came, truncheon whistling through the air, but Vimes ducked under the blow and caught the man's arm in both hands, twisting it up behind his back and bringing his ear into immediate conjunction with Vimes's mouth. "'Not quite unexpected, sunshine,' he whispered. "'Now, we'll both keep grinning because the lads are laughing at our Ned. Isn't he a card who keeps having a go at the old Sarge, and we don't want to spoil their fun?' I'm letting you go now, but you try it on one more time, and you'll have to use both hands to pick up a spoon. And you'll need to pick up a spoon, Ned, because of living off soup by reason of having no damned teeth. He relaxed his grip. Who taught you this stuff, anyway? Sergeant Keel, Sarge, said Ned. You're doing a good job, Sergeant Keel. Vimes turned to see Captain Swing advancing across the yard. He was smaller and slimmer in daylight, and he looked like a clerk, and a clerk who was only erratically careful about his appearance. His hair was lank, and the thick black strands plastered across a central bald spot suggested that the man had either no mirror or completely lacked a sense of humour. His coat, in the light, was old-fashioned but well cared for, but his buckled shoes were scuffed and generally downtrodden. Vimes's mother would have had something to say about that. "'A man ought to look after his boots,' she always said. "'You could tell a man by the shine of his shoes.' Swing also carried a walking stick, or rather an opera cane. It was just possible that he thought it made him look sophisticated, rather than, say, like a man carrying an unnecessary length of wood. It was certainly a sword stick, because it rattled when it hit the pavement. And it did so now, as he primly picked his way through the old targets and straw debris.' "'Keeping the men up to scratch, I see,' he said. "'Very well done. Is your captain here?' "'I believe not,' said Vimes, letting Coates go. "'Sir.' "'Ah, well, perhaps you will give him this, Sergeant Keel.' Swing gave him a faint smile. "'You had a successful night, I am given to understand.' "'We had a few visitors,' said Vimes. "'Sir?' "'Ah, yes. Misplaced zeal. "'It does not pay to underestimate you, Sergeant.' "'You are a man of resource. Alas, the other houses were not so... resourceful.' "'Ah, yes. I am afraid, Sergeant, that some of my keener men feel you are an obstacle to our very needful work. I, on the contrary, believe that you are a man of iron adherence to the law, and while this has led to elements of friction because of your lack of full understanding of the exigencies of the situation,' I know that you are a man after my own heart. Vimes considered the anatomical choices. That would be broadly correct, sir, he said, although I would not aspire that high. Capital. I look forward to our future cooperation, Sergeant. Your new captain will undoubtedly inform you of other matters as he sees fit. Good day. Swing swivelled and walked his jerky walk back to the gate. His men turned to follow him, but one of them, who was wearing a plaster cast on one arm, made a gesture. "'Morning, Henry,' said Vimes. He examined the letter. It was quite thick and had a big embossed seal, 
but Vimes had spent too much time in the company of bad men and knew exactly what to do with a sealed envelope. He also knew how to listen. New captain. So, it was starting. The men were watching him. They're calling in more <laughs> soldiers, Sarge, said Snouty. I expect so, said Vimes. They gave Captain Tilden the push, didn't they? Yeah. He was a good captain, Snouty protested. Yes, Vimes said. No, he thought. He wasn't. He was a decent man and he did his best, that's all. He's well out of it now. What are we going to do now, Sarge? said Lance Constable Vimes. We'll patrol, said Vimes. Close in. Just these few streets. What good'll that do? More good than if we didn't, lad. Didn't you take the oath when he joined up? What oath, Sarge? He didn't, Vimes remembered. A lot of them hadn't. You just got your uniform and your bell and you were a member of the Night Watch. A few years ago, Vimes wouldn't have bothered about the oath either. The words were out of date and the shilling on a string was a joke. But you needed something more than the wages, even in the Night Watch. You needed something else to tell you that it wasn't just a job. Snoutly, nip up to the captain's office and get the shilling, will you? said Vimes. Let's get this lot sworn in. And where's Sergeant Knock? Pushed off, Sarge, said Wiglet. I don't know if it helps, but he said to hell with him when he went out the door. Vimes counted heads. It'd be said, later on, that all the watch house stayed on. They hadn't, of course. Some had slipped away, some hadn't come back on duty at all. But it was true about Keel and the line. OK, lads, he said. It's like this. We know what's been going on. I don't know about you, but I don't like it. Once you get troops on the streets, it's only a matter of time before it goes bad. Some kid throws a stone, next minute there's houses on fire and people getting killed. What we're going to do is keep the peace. That's our job. We're not going to be heroes. We're just going to be normal. Now, he shifted position, it might just be that someone will say we're doing something wrong, so I'm not going to order you. He drew his sword and scratched a line across the mud and stones. If you step over the line, then you're in, he said. If you don't, then that's fine. You didn't sign up for this, and I doubt there'll be any medals, whatever happens. I'll just ask you to go, and a best of luck to you. It was almost depressing how quickly Lance Constable Vimes crossed the line. Fred Colon came next, and Waddy, and Billy Wiglet, and Spatchcock, Culweather, and Moist, and Leggy Gaskin, and Horace Nancy Ball, and Curry, wasn't it? And Evans, and Pounce. A dozen crossed the line the last few with the reluctance caused by a battle between peer pressure and a healthy regard for their skin. A few others, more than Vimes had hoped, evaporated at the back. That left Ned Coates. He crossed his arms. "'You're all bloody mad,' he said. "'We could use you, Ned,' said Vimes. "'I don't want to die,' said Ned, "'and I don't intend to. This is stupid. There's not a dozen of you. What can you do? All that stuff about keeping the peace, it's rubbish, lads.' Coppers do what they're told by the men in charge. It's always like that. What'll you do when the new captain comes in, eh? And who are you doing this for? The people? They attack the other houses, and what's the night watch ever done to hurt them? Nothing, said Vimes. There you are, then. I mean, the watch did nothing, and that's what hurt them, said Vimes. What could you do, then? Arrest Winder? Vimes felt he was building a bridge of matchsticks over a yawning abyss, and now he could feel the chilly winds below him. He'd arrested Vetinari back in the future. Admittedly, the man had walked free after what passed for the due process of law, but the city watch had been... was going to be big enough and strong enough and well-connected enough to actually arrest the ruler of the city. How had they ever got to that stage? 
How had he even dreamed that a bunch of coppers could slam the cell door on the boss? Well, perhaps it had started here. Lance, Constable Vimes, was watching him intently. Of course we can't, he said. But we ought to be able to. Maybe one day we will. If we can't, then the law isn't the law. It's just a way of keeping people down. Looks like you've woken up and smelled the khaki, said Coates, because that's exactly what you're in. Sorry, lads, but you're going to die. That's what'll happen if you tangle with real soldiers. Remember Dolly Sisters last night? Three dead and they weren't even trying. Come on, Ned. No one's going to have a go at us if we're just patrolling, mumbled Colon. Patrolling for what? said Coates. To keep the peace? What'll you do when there's no peace left to keep? Well, I'm not going to stand around and see you get killed. I'm off. He turned and strode out of the yard and into the watch house. You bloody fool, you're right, Thymes thought. I just wish you weren't so right. Still with us, lads, he said to the group caught behind the line. That's right, Sarge, said Lance Constable Vimes. The rest of the volunteers seemed slightly less certain. Are we going to get killed? said Wiglet. Who says it's going to come to a fight? said Vimes, watching Coates' retreating back. Wait a moment, I want a word with Ned. Got the singing, Sarge, Snouty announced, advancing across the yard, and the captain wants a word with you. Tell him I'll be up there in just a few. It's a new captain, said Snouty quickly. He's there already. <laughs> Keen, military, not the patient type, Sarge. I used to have carrot and detritus and anger and cheery for this, Vimes thought bitterly. I'd say you do this and you do that, and all I had to do was fret and deal with the sodding politics. Get Fred to swear the men in, he said, and tell the officer I'll be with him shortly. He ran through the watch house and out the front door. There were a lot of people in the street, more than usual. It wasn't a mob as such, but it was Ankh-Morpork's famous Ur-mob. The state you got just before a real mob happened. It spread across the city like web and spider, and when some triggering event happened, twanged its urgent message through the streets and thickened and tightened around the spot. The Dolly Sisters' massacre had got around, and the numbers had grown in the telling. Vimes could sense the tension on the web. It was just waiting for some idiots to do the wrong thing, and nature is bountiful where idiots are concerned. Coats! he yelled. To his surprise, the man stopped and turned. Yeah? I know you're with the revolutionaries. You're just guessing. No. You had the password in your notebook, said Vimes. The same one Dibbler was passing out in pies. You must know I was able to get into the lockers. Look, do you think you and Dibbler would still be walking around if I was a spy for Swing? Sure. You're not after us. We can be mopped up later. Swing wants the leaders. Vimes stood back. OK. Why haven't you told the lads? Things are moving, that's why. It's all starting, said Ned. Who you are doesn't matter any more, but you're going to get all the lads killed. They'd have been on our side if it wasn't for you. I was working on them. You know Spatchcock always drops his sword on his foot and Nancy Bull wets himself when he's threatened and Vimes he is simple and now you're going to stick them all in the middle and they're going to die and all for no reason. Why haven't you told them? Vimes repeated. Maybe you got friends in high places, Ned snarled. Vimes glanced up at the rooftops. Have we finished? said Ned. Give me a badge, said Vimes. You what? You're quitting, fair enough. Give me a badge. Coates recoiled as if he'd been stung. Blow that. Then leave the city, said Vimes. It'd be for your own good. Is that a threat? Not from me. But here's some advice, boy. Don't put your trust in revolutions. They always come round again. That's why they're called revolutions. People die and nothing changes. I'll see you later. He turned his back and hurried away so that the man wouldn't see his face. OK. 
Now it was time. It had to be now, or he'd burst like Mr. Salciferous. He had wanted to do this, hadn't dared try it, because those monks could probably do a man a lot of no good if he crossed them, but it had all gone too far now. A sense of duty told him there was an officer waiting to see him. He overruled it. It was not in possession of all the facts. Thimes reached the entrance to the watch-house and stopped. He shut his eyes. If anyone bothered to look at him, they'd have seen a man apparently trying to grind two cigarette stubs into the road, one with each foot. Thank you, Rosie, for those cardboard soles. He smiled. He thought with the brains in his feet. And as young Sam had noticed, the feet had a memory of their own. Rounded, cat-head cobbles, the usual kind, they hadn't been well set in this part of the city and moved very slightly underfoot. Then, twice before getting to the watch-house, his feet had felt larger cobbles, narrow bands of them where the road surface had been replaced after drains had been laid. And before that, there'd been a similar band, but of soft brick rubble, so crushed by cartwheels that it was practically a gully. A few dozen steps earlier, they'd twirled him round a couple of times, but the last surface before that had been mud. Vimes, who had been walking with his eyes shut, bumped into a cart. Mud, he thought, getting up and ignoring the strange looks of passers-by. That meant an alley. Let's see. Ah, yes, over there. It took twenty minutes. People turned as he walked through the streets, closing his eyes when he dared, so that his feet could see better. Sometimes he did look around, though, and there it was again, the thunderstorm sensation of tensions building up, waiting for the first little thing. People were uneasy. The herd was restless, and they didn't know quite why. Everyone he looked at returned his gaze blankly. He stepped onwards, rough flagstones between two stretches of the ancient cobbles they called troll heads. The only place we had got that in this part of the city was here, where Pewter Street crossed Elm, and before that it had been, yeah, big stones, some of the most ancient in the city, rutted by hundreds and hundreds of years of iron-bound cartwheels. That was a road that had been right behind a city wall. Yes, he crossed the pits, still on Elm, and then lost his thread. A metal grating on the pavement gave it back to him. Cellar grating, cool cellar. Coat of arms knit worn down, butter market. Yep, go feet. The monks had turned him again here, but long bricks, hard fired in the kiln, and a stretch of quite modern flagstones, well dressed and fitted. It could trick you if you didn't know you were in, yeah, Mason's Road, and there were Masons here, and they looked after the surface. Now find an alley, mud but with a lot of gravel in it, because the stonemasons dumped their waste here, but this one has occasional hummocks across it, where pipes have been laid. Yeah, now find square head cobbles. He opened his eyes, yeah. Away on his left was a block of three buildings, a temple, sandwiched between two cheap jack corner shops. It was just a temple, slightly foreign-looking, but weren't they all? It looked high Hublandish, where everyone lived on yaks or something. The temple doors were locked. He rattled the handle impotently, then hammered on the woodwork with his sword. It had no effect. He didn't even leave a mark on the wood. But the door of the shonky shop next door was open. It was a familiar place. Once upon a time it was his tailor and bootmaker, and, like a pawn shop, a shonky shop was always open. Vimes stepped inside and was immediately enveloped in dusty darkness. It was a cave of cloth, racks of old suits hung from the ceiling, ancient shelves bent under piles of shirts and vests and socks. Here and there old boxes loomed in the gloom and caught his knees. Piles of derelict boots slipped and slid under his feet, and there was the smell... If poverty had a smell, this was it. If humbled pride had a smell, this was it. And there was a touch of disinfectant as well. Within a few feet of the door, Vimes was already lost. He turned and shoved his way through grey aisle after grey aisle of suffocating cloth and wondered if anyone had ever died in here and how anyone could ever find their way out. 
He pulled aside a hanger containing a greasy, threadbare suit. "'You want?' He turned. There was no one there, until his gaze fell slightly and met that of a small, glossy little man, totally bald, very small, and thin, and wearing some vague clothing that presumably even a shonky shop hadn't been able to unload on a customer. Who was he? Who was he? Surprisingly, the name seemed quite fresh in the memory. "'Ah, yeah, Mr. Shine?' "'Sornshine son,' said Mr. Soon. "'He grabbed the suit Vimes was still holding. "'Good eye, good eye, lovely cloth, lovely cloth, "'owned by priest, very good. Fifty pence to you, shame to sell it, times are hard.' "'Vimes hastily put the suit back on the rack "'and pulled out his badge. Soon glared at it. "'I pay already other copper,' he said. "'One dollar, one month, no trouble. "'Already I pay other copper.' "'Pay?' said Vimes. Toe-stripe copper, already I pay. One dollar, one month, no trouble. Corporal Quirk, muttered Vimes. You don't have to pay coppers, Mr. Soon. We're here for your protection. Despite his barely basic grasp of the language, Mr. Soon's expression suggested very clearly that the three-stripe, one-crown copper in front of him had dropped in from the planet idiot. Look, I haven't got time for this, said Vimes. Where's the back door? This is watch business. I pay. I pay protection. One month, no trouble. Vimes grunted and set off along another narrow, cloth-lined tunnel. A glint of glass caught his eye, and he sidled crabwise up a choked aisle until he found a counter. It was piled with more hopeless merchandise, but there was a bead-curtained doorway behind it. He half clambered, half swam over the piles and scrambled into the tiny room beyond. Mr. Soon pushed his way to an ancient tailor's dummy, it was so scratched, chipped and battered, it looked like something dug up from the volcanic ash of an ancient city. He pulled on an arm, and the eyes lit up. "'Number three, here,' he said into its ear. "'He's just gone through, and boy, is he angry!' The back door was locked, but yielded under the weight of Vimes's body. He staggered into the yard, looked up at the wall separating this greasy space from the temple's garden, jumped scrabbled his boots on the brickwork and dragged himself onto the wall, feeling a couple of bricks crumble away underneath him. He landed on his back and looked up at a thin, robed figure sitting on a stone seat. "'Cup of tea, Commander?' said Sweeper, cheerfully. "'I don't want any damned tea!' shouted Vimes, struggling to his feet. Sweeper dropped a lump of rancid yak butter in the tea bowl beside him. "'What do you want, then, Mr Vimes, with a very helpful feet?' "'I can't deal with this. You know what I mean.' "'You know, some tea really would calm you down,' said Sweeper. "'Don't tell me to be calm. When are you going to get me home?' A figure stepped out of the temple. He was taller, heavier man than Sweeper, white-haired and with the look of a good-natured bank manager about him. He held out a cup. Vimes hesitated a moment and then took the cup and poured the tea out on the ground. "'I don't trust you,' he said. "'There could be anything in this.' "'I can't imagine what we could put in tea that would make it any worse than the way you normally drink it,' said Sweeper calmly. "'Sit down, Your Grace, please.' Vimes sagged onto the seat. The rage that had been driving him sank a little too, but he could feel it bubbling. Automatically, he pulled out a half-smoked cigar and put it in his mouth. "'Sweeper said you'd find us one way or another,' said the other monk. "'So much for secrecy.' "'Why should you worry?' said Vimes. "'You can just play around with time and it won't have happened, right?' "'We don't intend to do that,' said the other monk. "'What could I do, anyway? "'Go around telling everyone that those loony monks you see in the streets "'are some kind of time-shifters. "'I'd get locked up. "'Who are you, anyway?' "'Ah, uh, this is Kill,' 
said Sweeper, nodding at the other monk. When the time comes, he'll get you back, but not yet. Vimes sighed. The anger had drained, leaving only a hopeless, leaden feeling. He stared blankly at the strange rockery that occupied most of the garden. It looked oddly familiar. He blinked. I've been talking to people today who are going to die, he said. How do you think that makes me feel? Do you know what that feels like? The monks gave him a puzzled look. Er, uh, yes, said Q. We do, said Sweeper. Everyone we talk to is going to die. Everyone you talk to is going to die. Everyone dies. I've been changing things, said Vimes, and added defensively, Well, why shouldn't I? Carceries? I have no idea how things are going to turn out. I mean, doesn't it change history, even if you just tread on an ant? For the ant, certainly, said Q. Sweeper waved a hand. I told you, Mr Vimes, history finds a way. It's like a shipwreck. You're swimming to the shore. The waves will break whatever you do. Is it not written? The big sea does not care which way the little fishies swim. People die in their due time. Keel didn't. Carser mugged the poor devil. His due time in this present, Commander, said Q. But he will pay his part in the other, Mr Vimes, eventually. You'll reach the shore. You must otherwise. There's no shore, said Sweeper. No, said Vimes. There's got to be more. I'm not swimming. I'm drowning. It was fun, you know, at first, like a boy's night out, feeling the street under me boots again. But now, what about Sybil? Are my memories real? What I know is she's a girl living with her dad. Is there somewhere where she's my wife having my child? I mean, really? Is it all in my mind? Can you prove it? Is it happening? Will it happen? What is real? The monks were silent. Sweeper glanced at Q, who shrugged. He glanced rather more meaningfully, and this time Q made that dismissive little wave of the hand which is someone signifying all right, all right, against my better judgment. Then Sweeper said, Yes, very slowly. Yes, I think we can help, Commander. You want to know there's a future waiting. You want to hold it in your hand. You want to feel the weight of it. You want one point to navigate by, one point to steer for. Yes, I think we can help you there, but... Yes, but you must climb back over that wall and Sergeant Keel plays his part. He sees it all through to the end. He gives the orders he feels are right, and they will be the right orders. He holds the line. He does the job. He's not the only one, said Vimes. Yes, Commander Vimes has a job in hand too. Don't worry. I'm not leaving Carcer behind, growled Vimes. Good. We'll be in touch. Vimes tossed the stump of his cigar aside and looked up at the wall. All right, he said, I'll see it through. But when the time comes, we will be ready, said Sweeper. Just so long as you... He stopped. There was another subtle sound, scaly in its way, a sort of silicon slither. My goodness, said Q. Vimes looked down. The cigar butt still smouldered, but around it the garden of inner city tranquillity was moving, pebble sliding over tiny pebble. A large, water-rounded rock floated gently around, spinning, and then Vimes became aware that the whole garden was spinning, turning on the little wisp of smoke. A spent match sailed past, rolling from stone to stone like a scrap of food passed from ant to ant. 
Is he meant to do that? he said. In theory, yes, said Weeper. I shall leave right now, Mr. Vimes. Vimes took one last look at the moving garden, shrugged and then heaved himself over the wall. The two monks stared. The tide of little stones was gently pushing the stub into the centre. Astonishing, said Q. He's part of the pattern now. I don't know how you manage it. I'm not doing it, said Sweeper. Q, can we? No more time-shifting, said Q. It's caused quite enough trouble. Fair enough, said Sweeper. Then I'll need to send out search parties. The fences, the bench jewellers, the pawn shops. We'll find it. I understand, our friend. The job's not enough. He needs one real thing, and I know what it is. They looked again at the turning, shifting garden, and felt the fingers of history spreading out and into the world. Vimes tried not to run back to the watch-house, because too many people were standing around in groups, and even a running uniform could be risky. Besides, you didn't run for officers. He was a sergeant. Sergeants walked with a measured tread. To his mild surprise, the men were still out in the yard. Someone had even hung up the swordsmanship targets, which would certainly be helpful if the watchmen were faced with an enemy who was armless and tied to a pole. He climbed the stairs. The captain's door was open, and he saw that the new man had repositioned his desk so that he could see out onto the landing and down the stairs. Not a good sign, not a good sign at all. An officer shouldn't see what was going on, he should rely on his sergeants to tell him what was going on. That way things ran smoothly. This man was keen. Oh, dear. The new captain looked up. Oh, good grief, Vimes thought. It's bloody rust this time round. And it was indeed the Honourable Ronald Rust, the God's gift to the enemy, any enemy, and a walking encouragement to desertion. The Rust family had produced great soldiers by the undemanding standards of deduct your own casualty from those of the enemy, and if the answer is a positive sum, it was a glorious victory, school of applied warfare. But Rust's lack of any kind of military grasp was matched only by his high opinion of the talent that he in fact possessed only in negative amounts. It hadn't been Rust last time. He vaguely remembered some other dim captain. All these little changes, what would they add up to? I bet he's only just been made a captain, thought Vimes. Just think of the lives I could save by accidentally cutting his head off now. Look at those blue eyes. Look at that stupid curly moustache. And he's only going to get worse. Are you kill? The voice was a bark. Yes, sir. I sent an order for you to come up here an hour ago, man. Yes, sir. But I've been on duty all night and morning, and it's been rather a lot to attend to. I expect an order to be obeyed promptly, Sergeant. Yes, sir, so do I. That's why discipline starts at the top, Sergeant. The men obey you, you obey me, I obey my superiors. Glad to hear it, sir. Rust had the same firm grip of common politeness, too. What is all that going on in the yard? Vimes steered according to the prevailing wind. Bit of morale building, sir, instilling a bit of esprit de corps and hit a reef. Rust raised his eyebrows. Why? he said. The men's job is to do what they're told, as is yours. A group hug is not part of the arrangements, is it? A bit of camaraderie helps the job along, sir, in my experience. Are you eyeballing me, Keel? No, sir. I am wearing an expression of honest doubt, sir. Eyeballing is four steps up, right after looking at you in a funny way, sir. By standard military custom and practice, sir, sergeants are allowed to go all the way up to an expression of acute... 
What's that pip over your stripes, man? Means sergeant at arms, sir. They were a special kind of copper. The captain grunted and glanced at the papers in front of him. Lord Winder has received an extraordinary request that you be promoted to lieutenant, sergeant. It has come from Captain Swing of the Particulars, and his lordship listens to Captain Swing. Oh, and he wants you to be transferred to the Particulars. Personally, I think the man's mad. I'm 100% behind you there, sir. You do not wish to be a lieutenant? No, sir. Too long for Dick and too short for Richard, sir, said Vimes, focusing on a point a few inches above Rust's head. What? Neither one thing nor the other, sir. Oh, so you'd like to be a captain, eh? said Rust, grinning evilly. No, sir. Don't want to be an officer, sir. Get confused when I see more than one knife and fork on a table, sir. You certainly don't look like officer material to me, sergeant. No, sir. Thank you, sir. Good old Rust. Good young Rust. The same unthinking rudeness masquerading as blunt speaking, the same stiff neckness, the same petty malice. Any sergeant worth his salt would see how to make use of that. Wouldn't mind transferring to the particulars, though, sir, he volunteered. It was a bit of a gamble, but not much. Rust's mind was reliable. I expect you would like that, Keel, said Rust. No doubt you ran rings round that old fool Tilden, and don't fancy the idea of a captain with his finger on a pulse, eh? No, you can damn well stay here, understand? Wonderful, thought Vimes. Sometimes it's like watching a wasp land on a stinging nettle. Someone's going to get stung, and you don't care. Yes, sir, he said, eyes still staring straight ahead. Have you shaved today, man? Excuse shaving, sir, Vimes lied. Doctor's orders. Been sewn up on a face, sir. Could shave one off, sir. He remained at eye front, while Rust grudgingly stared at him. The cut was still pretty livid, and Vimes hadn't dared look under the patch yet. Hit yourself in the face with your own bell, did you? grunted the captain. Vimes' fingers twitched. "'Very funny, sir,' he said. "'Now, go and get the men fell in, Keel. "'Look sharp. I shall inspect them in a moment. "'And tell that idiot with the flat nose to clear the stable.' "'Sir?' "'My horse will be arriving shortly. "'I don't want to see that disgusting screw in there.' "'What?' "'Turn out Marilyn, sir,' said Vimes, genuinely shocked. "'That was an order. Tell him to jump to it.' "'What do you want us to do with her, sir?' "'I don't care. You're a sergeant. You've had an order.' "'Presumably there are knacker men. "'People round here must eat something, no doubt.' "'Vimes hesitated a moment. "'Then he saluted. "'Right you are, sir,' he said. "'Do you know what I saw on the way here, Sergeant?' "'Couldn't say, sir,' said Vimes, staring straight ahead. "'People were building barricades, Sergeant.' "'Sir?' "'I know you heard me, man.' "'Well, it's to be expected, sir. "'It's happened before. "'People get jumpy.' They hear rumours of mobs and out-of-control soldiers. They try to protect their street. It is a flagrant challenge to government authority. People can't take the law into their own hands. Well, yes, but these things generally run their course. My gods, man, how did you manage to get promoted? Vimes knew he should leave it at that. Rust was a fool, but at the moment he was a young fool, which is more easily excused. Maybe it was just possible, if caught early enough, that he could be upgraded to idiot. "'Sometimes it pays to,' he began. "'Last night, every watch-house in the city was mobbed,' said Rust, ignoring him. "'Except this one. How do you account for that?' His moustache bristled. Not being attacked was definite proof of Vimes's lack of moral fibre. Uh, "'It was just a case of, apparently, a man attempted an assault on you. Where is he now?' "'I don't know, sir. We bandaged him up and took him home.' "'You let him go?' "'Yes, sir. He was... 
but Rust was always a man to interrupt an answer with a demand for the answer he was in fact interrupting. Why? Sir, because at that time I thought it prudent to... Three watchmen were killed last night, did you know that? There were gangs roaming the streets. Well, martial law has been declared. Today we're going to show them a firm hand. Get your men together now. Vimes saluted, turned about and walked slowly down the stairs. He wouldn't have run for a big clock. A firm hand, right. Gangs roaming the streets. Well, we sure as hell never did anything when they were criminal gangs. And when you've got madmen and idiots on either side and everything hangs in the balance, well, trouble is always easy to find when you have enough people looking for it. One of the hardest lessons of young Sam's life had been finding out that the people in charge weren't in charge. It had been finding out that governments were not, on the whole, staffed by people who had a grip, and that plans were what people made instead of thinking. Most of the watchmen were clustered around the stairs. Snouty was quite good at internal communications, the worrying kind. "'Tidy yourselves, lads,' said Vimes. "'Captain will be down in a few minutes. "'Apparently it's time for a show of strength.' "'What strength?' said Billy Wiglet. "'Ah, Billy, what happens is the vicious revolutionaries take one look at us "'and scuttle off back to their holes,' said Vimes. "'He was immediately sorry he'd said that. "'Billy hadn't learned irony. "'I mean, we just give the uniforms an airing.' he translated. "'We'll get cheesed,' said Fred Colon. "'Not if we stick together,' said Sam. "'Right,' said Vimes. "'After all, we're heavily armed men going on patrol amongst civilians who are, by law, unarmed. If we're careful, we shouldn't get too badly hurt.' Another bad move. Dark sarcasm ought to be taught in schools, he thought. Besides, armed men could get into trouble if the unarmed civilians were angry enough, especially if there were cobblestones on the streets.' He heard the distant clock strike three. Tonight, the streets would explode. According to the history books, it would be one shot that did it around sunset. One of the foot regiments would be assembled in Hen and Chicken's field, waiting orders, and there would be people watching them. Troops always drew an audience. Impressionable kids, the inevitable Ankh-Morpork floating street crowd, and, of course, the ladies whose affection was extremely negotiable. The crowd shouldn't have been there, people said afterwards. But where should they have been? The field was a popular spot... It was the only vaguely green space in that part of the city. People played games there, and, of course, there was always the progress of the corpse on the gibbet to inspect. Besides, there were troops, ordinary foot soldiers, people's sons and husbands, taking a bit of a rest and having a drink. Oh, that was right. Afterwards, it was said that the troops were drunk, and that they shouldn't have been there. Yep, that was the reason, Vimes reflected. No one should have been there. But they were... And when that captain got an arrow in his stomach and was groaning on the ground, some of the crossbowmen fired in the direction of the shot. That's what the history books said. They fired at the house windows where people had been watching. Perhaps the shot had come from one of them. Some arrows fell short, some did not. And there were people who fired back. And then, one after another, horrible things would happen. By then it was too late for them not to. The tension would unwind like a spring, scything through the city. There were plotters. There was no doubt about that. Some had been ordinary people who'd had enough. Some were young people with no money who'd objected to the fact that the world was run by old people who were rich. Some were in it to get girls. And some had been idiots as mad as swing, with a view of the world just as rigid and unreal, who were on the side of what they called the people. Vimes had spent his life on the streets and had met decent men and fools and people who'd steal a penny from a blind beggar and people who'd performed silent miracles or desperate crimes every day behind the grubby windows of little houses, but he'd never met the people. People on the side of the people always ended up disappointed in any case, 
They found that the people tended not to be grateful or appreciative or forward-thinking or obedient. The people tended to be small-minded and conservative and not very clever and were even distrustful of cleverness. And so the children of the revolution were faced with the age-old problem. It wasn't that you had the wrong kind of government, which was obvious, but that you had the wrong kind of people. As soon as you saw people as things to be measured, they didn't measure up. What would run through the streets soon enough wouldn't be a revolution or a riot. It would be people who were frightened and panicking. It was what happened when the machinery of city life faltered, the wheels stopped turning, and all the little rules broke down. And when that happened, humans were worse than sheep. Sheep just ran. They didn't try to bite the sheep next to them. By sunset, a uniform would automatically be a target. Then it wouldn't matter where a watchman's sympathies lay, he'd be just another man in armour. "'What?' he said, snapping back to the present. "'You're right, Sarge,' said Corporal Colon. "'Hm?' said Vimes, as the real world returned. "'You were well away,' said Fred, "'staring at nothing. You ought to have had a proper sleep last night, Sarge.' "'There's plenty of time to sleep in the grave,' Vimes said, looking at the ranks of the watch. "'Yeah, I heard that, Sarge, but no one wakes you up with a cup of tea. I got them lined up, Sarge.' Fred had made an effort, Vimes could see. So had the men themselves. He'd never seen them looking quite so formal. Usually they had a helmet and a breastplate apiece. Beyond that, equipment was varied and optional, but today, at least, they looked neat. Shame about the heights. No man could easily inspect a row that included Wiglet at one end and Nancy Ball at the other. Wiglet was so short that he'd once been accused of navelling a sergeant, being far too short to eyeball anyone, while Nancy Ball was always the first man on duty to know when it was raining. You had to stand well back to get both of them into vision without eye strain. "'Well done, lads,' he managed, and heard Rust coming down the stairs. It must have been the first time the man had seen his new command in full. In the circumstances, he bore up quite well. He merely sighed. He turned to Vimes and said, "'I require something to stand on.' Vimes looked blank. "'Sir?' "'I wish to address the men in order to inspire them and stiffen their resolve. They must understand the political background of the current crisis.' "'Oh, we know all about Lord Winder being a loony, sir,' said Wiglet cheerfully. Frost nearly formed on Rust's forehead." Vimes drew himself up. "'Squad dismiss!' he shouted, and then leaned towards Rust as the men scuttled away. "'A quiet word, sir.' "'Did that man really say?' Rust began. "'Yes, sir. These are simple men, sir,' said Vimes, thinking quickly. "'Best not to disturb them, if you take my meaning.' Rust inserted this into his range of options. Vimes could see him thinking. It was a way out, and it suited his opinion as a watch in general. It meant that he hadn't been cheeked by a constable. He'd merely dealt with a simpleton.' "'They know their duty, sir,' Vimes added for reinforcement. "'Their duty, Sergeant, is to do what they're told.' "'Exactly, sir,' Rust stroked his moustache. "'There is something in what you say, Sergeant. "'And you trust them?' "'As a matter of fact, sir, yes.' Hmm. "'We will make a circuit of the surrounding streets in ten minutes. "'This is a time for action. "'Reports are disturbing. "'We must hold the line, Sergeant.' "'And he believes it,' thought Vimes. "'He really does.' The watchmen marched out into the afternoon sunshine, and did so badly. They were not used to marching. Their normal method of progress was the stroll, which is not a recognised military manoeuvre, or the frantic withdrawal, which is. In addition, the convection currents of prudent cowardice were operating in the ranks. There was a definite sideways component to each man's progress, as he sought to be in the middle. The watchmen had shields, but they were light wickerwork things intended to turn blows and deflect stones. They wouldn't stand up to anything with an edge. The advance, therefore, was by means of a slowly elongating huddle. Rust didn't notice. He had a gift for not seeing things he did not want to see, and not hearing things he did not want to hear. And what he saw was a barricade. Ankh-Morpork 
wasn't really a city, not when the chips were down. Places like Dolly Sisters and Knapp Hill and Seven Sleepers had been villages once, before they were absorbed by the urban sprawl. On some level, they still held themselves separate. As for the rest, well, once you got off the main streets, it was all down to neighbourhoods. People didn't move around much. When tension was high, you relied on your mates and your family. Whatever was going down, you tried to make sure it wasn't going down your street. It wasn't revolution. It was quite the reverse. It was defending your doorstep. They were building a barricade in Whalebone Lane. It wasn't a particularly good one, made up mostly of overturned market stalls, a small cart and quite a lot of household furniture, but it was a symbol. Rust's moustache bristled. Right in our faces, he snapped. Absolute defiance of constituted authority, Sergeant. Do your duty. And what would that be at this point, sir, said Vimes. Arrest the ringleaders and your men will pull the barricade down. Vimes sighed. Very well, sir. If you will stand back, I shall seek them out. He walked up to the domestic clutter, aware of eyes watching him before and behind. When he was a few feet away, he cupped his hands. All right, all right, what's going on here? he shouted. He was aware of whispering, and he was ready for what happened next. When the stone flew over the top of the furniture, he caught it in both hands. I asked a civil question, he said. Come on. There was more whispering. He distinctly heard, That's the sergeant from last night and some sort of sotto voce argument, and a voice shouted, "'Death to the fascist oppressors!' This time the argument was more frantic. He heard someone say, "'Oh, all right!' And then, "'Death to the fascist oppressors! Present company accepted! There, is everyone happy now?' He knew that voice. "'Mr. Reginald Shoe, is it?' "'I regret that I have only one life to lay down for Whalebone Lane!' the voice shouted from somewhere behind a wardrobe. "'If only you knew,' Vimes thought." "'I don't think that'll be necessary,' he said. "'Come on, ladies and gentlemen. "'Is this the only way to behave? "'You can't take the law into your own hands.' "'His voice faltered. "'Sometimes it takes the brain a little while to catch up with the mouth. "'Vimes turned and looked at the squad, "'who needed no prompting at all to hang back, "'and then he turned to look at the barricade. "'Where exactly was the law right now? "'What did he think he was doing?' The job, of course, the one that's in front of you. He'd always done it, and the law had always been out there, but somewhere close. He'd always been pretty sure where it was, and it definitely had something to do with the badge. The badge was important. Yes, it was shield-shaped, for protection. He'd thought about that in the long nights in the darkness. It protected him from the beast, because the beast was waiting in the darkness of his head. He'd killed werewolves with his bare hands, He'd been mad with terror at the time, but the beast had been there inside, giving him strength. Who knew what evil lurked in the hearts of men? A copper, that's who. After ten years you thought you'd seen it all, but the shadows always dished up more. You saw how close men lived to the beast. You realised that people like Carcer were not mad. They were incredibly sane. They were simply men without a shield. They'd looked at the world and realised that all the rules didn't have to apply to them not if they didn't want them to. They weren't fooled by all the little stories. They shook hands with the beast. But he, Sam Vimes, had stuck by the badge, except for that time when even that hadn't been enough and he'd stuck by the bottle instead. He felt as if he'd stuck by the bottle now. The world was spinning. Where was the law? There was a barricade. Who was it protecting from what? The city was run by a madman and his shadowy chums, so 
Where was the law? Coppers liked to say that people shouldn't take the law into their own hands, and they thought they knew what they meant. But they were thinking about peaceful times, and men who went around to sort a neighbour out with a club because his dog had crapped once too often on their doorstep. But at times like this, who did the law belong to? If it shouldn't be in the hands of the people, where the hell should it be? People who knew better? And then you got Winder and his pals, and how good was that? What was supposed to happen next? Oh yes, he had a badge, but it wasn't his, not really. And he'd got orders, and they were the wrong ones. And he'd got enemies for all the wrong reasons, and maybe there was no future. It didn't exist anymore. There was nothing real, no solid point on which to stand, just Sam Vimes where he had no right to be. It was as if his body, trying to devote as many resources as possible to untangling the spinning thoughts, was drawing those resources from the rest of Vimes. His vision darkened, his knees were weak. There was nothing but bewildered despair and a lot of explosions. Havelock Vetinari knocked politely on the window of the little office just inside the Assassin's Guild main gate. The duty porter raised the hatch. "'Signing out, Mr Maroon,' said the Assassin. "'Yes, sir,' said Maroon, pushing a bit later towards him. "'And where are we off to today, sir?' "'General reconnoitring, Mr Maroon, just generally looking around. "'Ah, I said to Mrs Maroon last night, sir, that you are a great one for looking around,' said Mr Maroon. "'We look and learn, Mr Maroon, we look and learn,' said Vetinari, signing his name in the book and putting the pen back in its holder. "'And how is your little boy?' "'Thank you for asking, sir. He's a lot better,' said the porter. "'Glad to hear it. "'No, I see the Honourable John Bleedwell is out on the commission. "'To the palace?' "'No, no, sir,' said Maroon, grinning and waving a finger. "'You know I couldn't tell you that, sir, even if I knew.' "'Of course not.' "'Vetinari glanced at the back wall of the office, "'where, in an old brass rack, were a number of envelopes. "'The word active was inscribed at the top of the rack. "'Good afternoon, Mr Maroon.' "'Afternoon, sir. Good, er, uh, looking around.' He watched the young man walk out into the street. Then Maroon went into the cubbyhole next to the office and put the kettle on. He rather liked young Vetinari, who was quiet and studious, and, it had to be said, a generous young man on appropriate occasions. But a bit weird all the same. Once Maroon had watched him in the foyer standing still. That was all he was doing. He wasn't making any attempt at concealing himself. After a half an hour, Maroon had wandered over and said, "'Can I help you, sir?' And Vetinari had said, "'Thank you, no, Mr Maroon. I'm just teaching myself to stand still.' To which there wasn't really any sensible comment that could be made. And the young man must have left after a while because Maroon didn't remember seeing him again that day. He heard a creak from the office and poked his head around the door. There was no one there. As he made the tea, he thought he heard a rustle from next door and went to check. It was completely empty.' Remarkably so, he thought later on. It was almost as if it was even more empty than it would be if there was just, well, no one in it. He went back to his comfy armchair in the cubbyhole and relaxed. In the brass rack, the envelope marked Bleedwell J slid back slightly. There were a lot of explosions. The firecrackers bounced all over the street, tambourines thudded, a horn blared a chord unknown in nature, and a line of monks danced and twirled around the corner, all chanting at the tops of their voices. Vimes, sagging to his knees, was aware of dozens of sandaled feet gyrating past and grubby robes flying. Rust was yelling something at the dancers, who grinned and waved their hands in the air. Something square and silvery landed in the dirt. 
and the monks were gone, dancing into an alleyway, yelling and spinning and banging their gongs. "'Wretched heathens!' said Rust, striding forward. "'Have you been hit, Sergeant?' Vimes reached down and picked up the silver rectangle. A stone clanged off Rust's breastplate. As he raised his megaphone, a cabbage hit him in the ear. Vimes stared at the thing in his hand. It was a cigar case, slim and slightly curved. He fumbled it open and read, "'To Sam, with love from your Sibyl.' The world moved, but now Vimes felt like a ship, drifting at anchor. At the end of the tether there was the tug of the anchor, pulling it around so that it faced the current. A barrage of missiles was coming over the barricade. Throwing things was an old Ankh-Morpork custom, and there was something about rust that made him a target. With what dignity he could muster, he raised the megaphone again and got as far as, "'I hereby warn you!' before a stone spun it out of his hand. "'Very well, then,' he said, and marched stiffly back to the squad. "'Sergeant Keel, order the men to fire. One round of arrows over the top of the barricade.' "'No,' said Vimes, standing up. "'I can only assume you've been stunned, Sergeant,' said Rust. "'Men, prepare to execute that order.' First man that fires, I will personally cut that man down,' said Vimes. He didn't shout. It was a simple, confident statement of precisely what the future would hold. Rust's expression did not change. He looked Vimes up and down. "'Is this mutiny, then, Sergeant?' said the captain. "'No. I'm not a soldier, sir. I can't mutiny.' "'Martial law, Sergeant!' snapped Rust. "'It is official!' "'Really,' said Vimes, as another rain of rocks and old vegetables came down. "'Shields up, lads!' Rust turned to Fred Colon. "'Corporal, you'll put this man under arrest!' Colon swallowed. "'Me?' "'You, Corporal, now!' Colon's pink face mottled with white as the blood drained from it. But he... he began. You won't? Then it seems I must, said the captain. He drew his sword. At that, Vimes heard the click of a crossbow safety catch going off and groaned. He didn't remember this happening. You just put that sword away, sir, please, said the voice of Lance Constable Vimes. You will not shoot me, you young idiot. That will be murder, said the captain calmly. Not where I'm aiming, sir. Bloody hell, thought Vimes. Maybe the lad was simple, because one thing Rust wasn't was a coward. He thought idiot stubbornness was bravery. He wouldn't back down in the face of a dozen armed men. "'Ah, I think I can see the problem, Captain,' Vimes said brightly. "'As you were, Lance Constable. There's been a slight misunderstanding, sir, but this should sort it out.' It was a blow he'd remember for a long time. It was sweet. It was textbook. Rust went down like a log.' In the light of all his burning bridges, Vimes slipped his hand back into his hip pocket. Thank you, Mrs. Goodbody, and your range of little equalizers. He turned to the watchmen, who were a tableau of silent horror. Let the record show Sergeant-at-Arms John Keel did that, he said. Vimes, what did I tell you about waving weapons around when you're not going to use them? You laid him out, Sarge, Sam squeaked, still staring at the sleeping captain. Vimes shook some life back into his hand. Let the record show that I took command after the captain's sudden attack of insanity, he said. Waddy, Wiglet, drag him back to the house and lock him up, will you? What are we going to do, Sarge? wailed Colon. Ah. Keep the peace. That was the thing. People often failed to understand what that meant. 
You'd go to some life-threatening disturbance, like a couple of neighbours scrapping in the street over who owned the hedge between their properties, and they'd both be bursting with aggrieved self-righteousness, both yelling. Their wives would either be having a private scrap on the side, or would have adjourned to a kitchen for a shared pot of tea and a chat, and they all expected you to sort it out. And they could never understand that it wasn't your job. Sorting it out was a job for a good surveyor and a couple of lawyers, maybe. Your job was to quell the impulse to bang their stupid fat heads together, to ignore the affronted speeches of dodgy self-justification, to get them to stop shouting and to get them off the street. Once that had been achieved, your job was over. You weren't some walking god dispensing finely tuned natural justice. Your job was simply to bring back peace. Of course... If your few strict words didn't work, and Mr Smith subsequently clambered over the disputed fence and stabbed Mr Jones to death with a pair of gardening shears, then you had a different job, sorting out the notorious hedge argument murder. But at least it was one you were trained to do. People expected all kinds of things from coppers, but there was one thing that sooner or later they all wanted. Make this not be happening. Make this not be happening. What? he said suddenly noticing a voice that had in fact been on the edge of awareness for some time. I said, was he insane, Sarge? But when you're falling off the cliff, it's too late to wonder if there might have been a better way up the mountain. He asked you to shoot the people who weren't shooting back, growled Vime, striding forwards. That makes him insane, wouldn't you say? They are throwing stones, Sarge, said Colon. So? Stay out of range. They'll get tired before we do. In fact, the barrage of missiles from the barricade had ceased. Even in a time of crisis, the people of Ankh-Morpork would stop for a decent piece of street theatre. Vimes walked back towards them, stopping on the way to retrieve Rust's bent megaphone. As he approached, he cast his eye over faces just visible through the chair legs and junk. There would be unmentionable somewhere, he knew, helping matters along. With luck, they wouldn't have bothered with Whalebone Lane. There was muttering from the defenders. Most of them had a look Vimes recognised, because it was the one he was trying to keep off his own face. It was the look of people whose world had suddenly been swept from under them, and now they were trying to tap-dance on quicksand. He tossed away the stupid, pompous megaphone. He cupped his hands. "'Some of you know me,' he shouted. "'I'm Sergeant Keel, currently in command of the Treacle Mine Road Watchhouse, and I order you to dismantle this barricade.' There was a chorus of jeers and one or two badly thrown missiles. Vimes waited stock-still until they died away. Then he raised his hands again. "'I repeat!' I order you to dismantle this barricade, he took a breath and went on, and rebuild it on the other side on the corner with Cable Street, and put up another one at the top of Shear Street, properly built. Good grief, we don't just pile stuff up for God's sake. A barricade is something you construct. Who's in charge here? There were sounds of consternation behind the overturned furniture, but a voice called out, You? There was nervous laughter. Very funny. Now laugh this one off. No one's interested in us yet. This is a quiet part of town. But when things really go bad, you're going to have cavalry on your backs, with sabres. How long would you last? But if you shut off this end of Treacle Mine and the end of Shear, then they're left with alleyways, and they don't like that. It's up to you, of course. We'd like to protect you, but me and my men will be behind the barricades over here. He turned on his heel and marched back to the waiting watchman. End of CD 7